Good morning. We continue our study of Mark, starting at chapter 2, verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom, bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so as, long as they have, so as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are, they, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Lord, sorry, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Sam, one of the staff team here. This morning, I want to share a lesson that I learned growing up. Growing up, there's part of me that thought that you had to live a certain way to please God. You had to be smart, say, or athletic, or musical, or all three. But I learned those things are all relative, and what God cares about, most of all, is you. Being top of the class was achievable at high school, but more of a challenge at sixth form and impossible at university. Being the fastest was doable in a local running club, harder in an inter-club setting, and impossible on a county or national level. And then there are injuries, shin splints, broken bones. These trials taught me that God doesn't love us because we're good. He doesn't love us because we're good at life or any particular aspect of it. He loves us because he loves us. He doesn't want our efforts our religion. He wants our hearts. 
We're in the second chapter of Mark's Gospel in our series, Discoveries That Change Life. And we're going to see this morning that God isn't religious. Let's pray as we start. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us this morning? Would you give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning contains three punchy little vignettes. They each contain a supposed infraction, which results in a question being leveled at Jesus and elicits his teaching in response. And going through the the three, we see that Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah that those around him necessarily expected. Maybe he isn't the kind of Messiah we might have expected. God isn't interested in religion. He's interested in you. The first thing we see is that fellowship with Jesus is more important than righteousness. Fellowship with Jesus is more important than righteousness. The episode begins with Jesus once again beside the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is in Capernaum on the northern shores of Galilee, near where the River Jordan flows south into the lake. That river splits Galilee and the Golan Heights, and Capernaum's there on that border. As he walks along, he spots Levi, the son of Alphaeus, at his tax collector's booth. The encounter is very similar to the, one, the ones we've been told about in chapter 1, where Jesus calls his first four disciples, Simon and Andrew, James and John. The difference is their profession. Fishermen weren't exactly kings, but compared to the scorn heaped on tax collectors, they were held in very high regard. Levi was a traitor. He had betrayed his people to collect taxes from them to give to Herod, the puppet king in place put there by the occupying Romans. His practice would have been to take what he needed and then to extort some more. To make matters worse, it was likely that the border on which Levi sat charging custom was a new one. Under Herod the Great, there had been one kingdom. But now, Herod the Great has gone, the kingdom's been split between his sons, and traders would have had to pay custom, where once they could have travelled freely to and fro. Now Levi's there, digging his hand deep, into their pockets every time. Being a tax collector was a bit like being a parking attendant or a traffic warden, all day long looking for infringements, handing out fines, not exactly making any friends. A few months ago, Claire and I received a parking charge notice in the post. Our car had been caught on CCTV, stopped on a red route. Turns out at 9.30 that particular evening, there had been an operator managing the CCTV camera on Brixton Hill, able to see our car down the side road through the bare branches of a tall tree uh, and could see us, stopped momentarily, and we had to pay £80 for dropping off a friend. That operator wasn't exactly looking for friends that evening, fair enough. 
it was their job. But unfortunately for Levi, he couldn't hide behind CCTV cameras and written correspondence. There he was, in his booth, by the lake. Everyone knew who he was. And everyone hated him. I read a few weeks ago that with the new ULES expansion, not only had uh, some vigilantes taken to the streets to get rid of the cameras that were catching them, but that the ULES enforcement officers had been uh, seen, had taken to wearing balaclavas themselves to protect their identities where they were so hated in the suburbs, trying to catch people who've been driving their family cars happily for years. Those enforcers aren't exactly the kinds of people being invited in for a cup of tea. Follow me, says Jesus. And like the fishermen, up Levi gets and follows. Brilliant, we've no problem with that. We expect Jesus to call a ragtag bunch of disciples. That's his way of doing things. But at the time, it was shocking. There's Jesus feasting with Levi and his mates, a crowd of tax collectors and sinners, crooks and misfits. And the Pharisees ask, why does he eat with these people? This gang of loan sharks, money launderers, arms dealers, mixed with petty criminals, drug dealers and prostitutes. Why? What's he doing? What's he thinking? Why is this new on the block, itinerant, preaching, teaching, healing rabbi, inviting these outcasts to follow and learn from him? Jesus comes back with what I think is one of the greatest lines of scripture. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, to be clear, I don't think Jesus is letting anyone off the hook. He's not saying to the Pharisees, you're fine, you don't need me. Rather, he's explaining his rationale, justifying his priority for the outsiders. He hasn't come to coddle the religious insiders. He's come to help those in need. Isn't that wonderful news? Like a doctor, come to serve and to save and to make sick people well. If you don't feel good enough, if you know that you've messed up, Jesus is there for you. He's calling you and the only disqualification is to think you're just fine on your own. I had the privilege of joining a prison ministry a few years ago. On Wednesday evenings, a car full of us would head out into the countryside to HMP Spring Hill, a men's Category D open prison. Those Wednesdays became a highlight of my week. There was a joy and a freedom in worship that I've rarely seen on the outside. These were men who knew that they had messed up. They knew they needed help and they had come to discover the life-transforming love of Jesus and his invitation, the one who came to save sinners. Sometimes there are things in life that we would like to do, clubs that we'd like to join, but we feel we aren't good enough for. I don't know if you've ever thought something like that. A book club that you'd like to join, but you don't read enough at the moment. A bridge club you'd like to join, but you haven't learned bridge yet. A golf club you'll join as soon as 
you reach the right level. Jesus says, follow me. No pre-joining requirements. No levels you need to attain. Follow me. Are we willing to put our trust in God through Jesus? The nature of some lives makes that an easier prospect for some than others. Levi seemed ready to get up and go and follow. But for the Pharisees, it was a different matter, easier to trust God through his law and the tradition of the elders, far more respectable than rubbing shoulders with Jesus and his comrades. Are we willing to identify with Jesus and his motley crew? For Jesus, relationship is clearly far more important than righteousness. God isn't interested in religion, he's interested in you. In the second vignette, we discover that feasting with Jesus is more important than rules and fasting. The second conflict is around fasting. There was one day of the year Jews were expected to fast, the Day of Atonement. Some would fast on days particularly important to their people, remembering past events. But the Pharisees went above and beyond. They fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. They were going well above and beyond. Fasting was a big deal. The astute come to Jesus and ask, why aren't your disciples fasting when those of John and the Pharisees are all fasting? What gives? He replies, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Clearly, they can't. No one ever fasts at a wedding. There are time for feasting, for celebrating, how wrong, perverse, disrespectful it would be to fast on that day with the bridegroom. Fasting, says Jesus, is intrinsically linked to that longing for God's kingdom to break in, a yearning for the wedding feast. He likens his disciples to the guests of the bridegroom and says, I, the bridegroom, have arrived. How could my disciples possibly fast? while they have me with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. It seems to me that primarily refers to Jesus being arrested, mocked, and executed. Three days, his disciples were in distress, mourning and fasting. How ugly a turn of events that the bridegroom in the run-up to the wedding should be abducted and done away with. Jesus hasn't been taken from us exactly, but we do long for his return, for the wedding of Christ and his church, the consummation of his kingdom, his kingdom of love, justice, and peace. Jesus illustrates this with two pictures contrasting the old and the new. You know how sometimes you're annoyed at yourself for shrinking a new piece of clothing if you wash it too hard that first time? Well, imagine that, but you've expertly sewn a patch onto an old beloved piece of clothing. It shrinks, it pulls away, and now you've ruined both. Or take wine, says Jesus. We use bottles on the whole, they tended to use bags. The new bags that they used would stretch as the wine fermented, and then they'd become hard and brittle. 
you put new wine in and there's no room for that pressure to go as it increases. It'd be like putting a bottle of white in the freezer and leaving it a bit longer than you meant to. As it expands, it would have nowhere to go. The glass would shatter and the wine would be lost. Jesus is making the point that the old and the new don't mix. And how does that relate to fasting? There's this expectation that Jesus, claiming to be God's Messiah, will fit into a certain mould. And Jesus, calling traitors like Levi to follow him, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, not teaching his disciples to fast, is increasingly breaking, exploding out of that mould. Jesus is saying that in him, the kingdom of God has come in a new way. And you can't just sew him in to the old thing. You can't just add him as a pretty badge on your scout jumper. You need a new jumper completely. He's not an add-on, a patch-on, or a top-up. He's an entirely new thing for which we need a new container. In Jesus' presence, it's only appropriate to feast and to celebrate. In him, God's kingdom is breaking in, in a new way. Are we willing to perceive the new thing in Jesus? Are we willing to allow him to fill the balloon of our expectations as much as he wants to? Or are we using an old brittle container, trying to tuck him away this much, Jesus, and no more? Jesus is more concerned about feasting with you than you fasting without him. God isn't interested in religion. He's interested in you. And the third thing we learn is that Sabbath freedom in Jesus is greater than Sabbath regulation. The front line of the conflict in this third vignette is the Sabbath. Table fellowship in the first, fasting in the second, both huge topics in Jesus' day, but Sabbath is massive. Sabbath was one of the two boundary markers that set the Jewish people apart from the nations. Reminders of God's covenant love, Sabbath and circumcision. Sabbath is the fourth commandment, the longest commandment, and the only one that reaches back to the creation narrative itself. Sabbath was a big deal in Jesus' day. And we lose some of that in our sort of Protestant freedom today when it comes to the Sabbath. We have a freedom that perhaps extends back to passages like this one. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll hear the Sabbath siren blaring as evening approaches on Friday. But you don't have to go all that way to see it being sort of lived out today. A few months ago, I was running north through London, and I came to a particular part that seemed surprisingly quiet for a Saturday afternoon. All the shops were shut. And then I realized where I was. I realized that a regular Saturday for me was Sabbath for this Jewish community in Golders Green. The only people out and about were Jews on their way to synagogue. But living in London, central London, with shops open seven days a week and delivery available 24 seven, 
we find it hard to understand, to get our heads around this concept of stopping and resting and not working for a whole day. But this is what the Pharisees pick up on. Jesus, why are your disciples breaking the Sabbath? Don't you care? Stop them, they're saying. And to us, it seems like a minor thing, just picking a few juicy blackberries on a country walk on a Sunday. But to the Pharisees, it's reaping one of the 39 works forbidden on the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't tell the Pharisees they're wrong. He doesn't defend his disciples in that sense. What he does do is he refers back to 1 Samuel 21 and says there's a precedent for this behavior. The precedent being that human need is greater than religious requirement. When David and his men were hungry, they ate, they were allowed to eat, the 12 Sabbath loaves. Jesus says the Sabbath is to be a blessing, not a curse. It's for human freedom and flourishing, not constricting and nitpicking. It's to give us all dignity and rest and to give God glory and honor. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Sabbath freedom with Jesus is greater than Sabbath regulation. God isn't interested in religion. He's interested in you, in relationship with you. And it can be easy as we come to this passage, as we see the conflict, it can be easy to point the finger at those asking these questions who seem to be judgmental. But that can happen to each of us very easily, even in our worship, our giving, our doing the action songs, our praying, our quiet times. It can become rote. It's just what we do, what we have to do, ritual, more about religious requirement than about relationship. And with that, we so easily become judgmental of those we deem don't or won't or can't measure up. As Christians, we're called to follow Jesus, sustaining ourselves as he did through prayer, scripture, fellowship, in order that we might enter into the world with grace and love and mercy and compassion and win others to him, to the one we know and love and follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he came not to be served, but to serve. Not to beat us up about our lack of religion or righteousness or our flagrant disrespect for the rules, but to bless us, to save us, to set us free, to follow him and live life with you. Amen.